Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning. Happy Fourth of July. Glory. Don't make things go boom. And remember, as you're making things go boom, say, down with King George. <laughs> the only way. Yeah. Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. Before we begin, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this nation that you have brought us into the world. We were born into this country we have inherited for all its glory and all its failure. We are, in fact, the children of our Father. Let us not turn away from who we are, but the place to be, what is done and what is left undone. As we consider, Lord, the country on this earth, which we are citizens, let us do so knowing full well that our citizenship truly is in heaven. That truly, our mother is the and our Father is the Lord. Let us remember that and know that and build a life upon it, even as we try to reform the country in this world of which we belong. We thank you and we praise you for your son, his ministry, Peter, and his ministry, and his wisdom, and all that he learned, Lord, from Christ that he teaches us now. We thank you, we praise you, and amen. John Adams said that our Constitution presupposes a moral and religious people, and that it is wholly unfit for any other. A truly moral and religious people would understand basic civics. Their orthodoxy and orthopraxy would include an understanding of constitutional political structures, sphere sovereignty, the concept of lex res. Their education would include basic civil symbiotics, as they used to call it. Now, what I love about this is that all of this used to be assumed to be taught in grade school, what we call grade school now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes to show that I did not even hear the word symbiotics until I was studying social science in college, uh, and it still eluded me for a bit. <laughs> what is symbiotics? Well, it means uh, a body. And so we are the body of Christ. We have a symbiotic that we are instructed in in the New Testament. But when it comes to the civil symbiotics, when it comes to the civil body, where is our education in that? Uh, I, would, I, I went to public school in the 80s and the 90s, and besides rah, 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 I don't really think I learned very much about American history, American politics. Which, you know, rah, rah, rah isn't terrible, there's worse things, but it's not very deep, it's not very wide. John Adams thought that an educated populace would include both educated in what basic government is and what the Christian religion is. He assumed these things. The problem with the founders is they, they assumed that it always be so. They, they did not really anticipate, right? They anticipated that if we got rid of the basic understanding of constitutionalism, republicanism, if we got rid of the Christian religion, we would probably get rid of the Constitution. Because it doesn't make any sense without those things. He assumed that we would have a proper understanding of the law of Christ, the law of grace, and what its relation to the law of Moses is exactly, both personally and publicly. But what I find is, right, we're just coming off of a long list of things that most modern Christians have no concept of. What is basic civil government? What does the law of Christ have to do with the law of Moses? The church has declined in its morals 
and in its religion, shown in the fact that most of us don't understand that the 18th century word religion meant Christianity, not the pluralistic come on and come all sideshow that is taught in comparative religion courses at state universities, celebrated with the pagans out at the National Cathedral in DC. If you've never seen it, there it is, there's this beautiful cathedral. And they will have anybody and everybody. If you're any sort of spiritual religion, you can go there and have services together. They love it. And this is what religion is. People read back into this word from the 18th century religion, and it could be a Buddhist, it could be a Mormon, it could be a Jehovah's Witness, it could be a Jew. And that's not what John Adams understood the word to mean. It means Christian. Any other, if you're not a Christian, you don't have a religion. This is what his assumption is. The church should know what their duties and responsibilities are as citizens under God. But for many Christians today, the height of their involvement is mere voting. And most of us don't even do that. Voting is about it, right? We figure that is our basic requirement to be a citizen of the country to vote. We have lost any concept of being a moral and religious people. Worthy, fit, I would say, of a constitution, especially this constitution. Now, what we need to resurrect is an old Puritan practice to help correct the problem. From the foreword of a book called Political Sermons from the Founding Era, it's fantastic. I suggest you read it. It's some spicy stuff. We read this in the foreword. Of the several vehicles for expounding political theology available to American ministers, the most venerable were the election sermons for 256 years in Massachusetts, 156 years in Connecticut. The practice began in Vermont in 1778 and in New Hampshire in 1784. These sermons were preached annually to the governor and to the legislator after the election of officers. Besides the election sermon, the artillery sermon was also an annual affair in Massachusetts and dealt with civic and military matters. So in our founding era, what you would have is you, right before the government is going to take up its business, you would have a minister come and instruct them in that business. Artillery sermons were when they were going to elect the officers of the artillery unit, because that's what you do in the military, you elect your officers. They would have a pastor come and preach a sermon to everyone, instructing them in their responsibility in voting and in leading the artillery. And so they developed a thing called an artillery sermon. And, and I think that we need to resurrect this. This led to a moral and religious people. This is why they could say they were a moral and religious people, because they had ministers instructing them in their duties as citizens, and they had ministers instructing the government and its duties to its citizens. Now, do you guys know that they still do this sort of? They have kind of a prayer when Congress starts, when they say things like a, a men and a woman. Yeah. <laughs> trying to imagine talking another hearing that. <laughs> now, John Thornton said that. To the pulpit, the Puritan pulpit, we owe the moral force with what are independent. And it's true. Now I want to suggest that the Puritan pulpit is how we're going to refresh and retain that independence. It's the only way. If we can't get the church behind this idea of instructing the people and being a moral and religious people, there is no hope for this country. It doesn't matter what we do in Congress, it doesn't matter what we do at the ballot box, it doesn't matter how many justices were conservative when their careers began because most of them don't stay that way. All of that does not matter if the pulpits in this country cannot get behind this idea. A moral and religious people are the only thing fit to this constitution. Now the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the king as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, what we have to understand in this verse is this is there is a lot here. There is a lot of meat, a lot of potatoes. This is a feast. What are these human institutions that Peter is speaking of? What does he mean that the king is supreme? Now, if you're looking down in your Bible now, it says emperor, but the word in Greek is actually king. And, and I think it's better to translate it as king. Most of us do not have an emperor. <laughs> uh, those, those who are living in the Victorian era, maybe that made a little more sense. But generally, it makes more sense when you say king. What does he mean that the king is supreme? What does, why does he codify the state government's function as the keeper of justice? You notice there, he, he says what the government is meant to do. It's meant to punish evildoers. It doesn't say anything about PDS. It doesn't say anything about building infrastructure. It doesn't say anything about the 208 or whatever it is federal agencies that the president oversees. It, it, it doesn't list all these other things. It says what we're supposed to do, keep justice. Give justice. Keep peace. When we understand the answers to these questions above, we, we become an increasingly moral and religious people. So first, what I want to do is talk about the very concept of authority. Because that's what we're talking about. Before we can understand what the human institutions are that he's referring to, we can understand how authority works. Peter says to be subject to human institutions, institutions, plural, for the Lord's sake, because all earthly spheres of authority, the church, the household, the state, are under Jesus' authority. He says, obey these authorities for Jesus' sake. Being properly subject to the lesser authority honors the greater authority. The triune God establishes authority, and by honoring them, you honor him. When you do not honor them, you do not honor him. When you make them into gods, you are not honoring him. When you refuse to obey them and honor them, you are disobeying and dishonoring the Lord Jesus. Matthew 28, 18 says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Romans 13, 1, For there is no authority except for God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus was shaping the new covenant mission of God's people, and he was teaching his disciples that Jesus was the highest authority. And why did they need to know that? Because at the time, there was an emperor, there, there was a Caesar, who himself called himself a god. I'm the Lord, Caesar said. And Jesus said, listen, I'm going to send you out on a very dangerous mission. And the first thing you need to understand is that I have, I, I am the supreme authority. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. So get that straight, and now go and tell everyone to obey me. Go and disciple the nations. We have to remember this if we're going to disciple the nations. We are confused about who the ultimate authority is. Our missional work is meaningless. meaningless. Paul and Peter understood this. They encouraged the embattled Roman church in their responsibility to authority, even pagan civil authority, because it was derived from God. Authority is always derived and is therefore limited. God is in heaven, he sits on his throne, and President Biden is the president because the Lord Jesus Christ wanted him to be. It, and, and just like Jesus said, if you, if you receive him, you receive the one who sent him, it's, it's the same thing when it comes to politics. If you receive the one that the Lord Jesus sent, Joe Biden in this case, you're receiving the Lord Jesus. If you reject him, you reject Jesus. This is a difficult conversation to have. This is a difficult pill to swallow. 
The same principle applies to authority. Positions of authority are not autonomous, neither are they to be ignored or scoffed at. God rules the world with hierarchies, and therefore, to live faithfully in God's world, we must avoid being scofflaws or treating authorities as if they are absolute. You see the two ditches here. You cannot act as if all authority besides yourself is stupid and meaningless, and you cannot also say that it is absolute. These are the ditches that all kinds of people drove into all last year for 18 months, right? It was the long disobedience in the same direction. People were headed for these ditches for a long time. We cannot scoff at them, and we cannot act like they're gods. There's a middle way, a biblical way, the Christ-focused way. Now, some would argue that Romans 13, 1 through 5 makes no qualification to our obedience to authority. That is absolute. You absolutely must obey the authority. Now, what I want to do is read it and then explain it, because there's a subtlety here that I think most people don't understand. Now, in Romans chapter 13, verses 2 through 4, we read this. Therefore, whoever resists the authority to resist what God gets appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Amen? For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Oh, he's there. That's just right there. That's it. There is no explicit qualification. There is an implicit qualification. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So what happens if they become a terror to good conduct? Are they still a legitimate government? No. <laughs> and, and I think this is what confuses people, because Paul doesn't state it clearly, like straight up, because we're, we're people now, modern Christians, want their proof text. It's very difficult to do in theology. And what we want is Jesus just to tell us. And so when you understand that um, rulers who are a terror to good conduct are now no longer official, they're no longer to be obeyed, you see that this actually um, is upheld by Scripture. If you go back to Exodus, beginning of Exodus, the midwives did not obey Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh was torturing and killing innocent people. And they said, we're not going to obey you. So you can see that throughout Scripture, obeying government is not an absolute thing. Now, what happens when government becomes a terror to good conduct? Has God left us no recourse? No, our defense against tyranny is found in what we call sphere sovereignty, the doctrine of sphere sovereignty. Authority is given to different leaders. Those authorities overlap and correct corruption, protecting us from one another's wickedness. Fathers and policemen, Congress and the President, state governors and county sheriffs. A biblical example of the protection provided by sphere sovereignty is found in the coup committed by the high priest, Jehoiada. This is why one of my sons' middle names is Jehoiada. I love this story. Because when it comes time, there is a usurping queen who's taken over the throne, and the high priest <laughs> commits a coup and then has her killed. And what I love about the story especially is the queen, who, who has stolen the throne, when they, come, they rise up against her, she yells, Treason! <laughs> yes, you have committed treason. And, and the priest, the high priest, puts her down. They kill her. That is what we should expect when there is tyrant is another authority, the high priest who has his own authority, rises up and, and overthrows an evil tyrant in order to put a good king in her place. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Okay? But, but there is a recourse for those who are living in a, in a situation, in a nation, 
where the government has become, become um, they are attacking good conduct. But the big thing that we have to understand at this point is that authority is derived from God. God has appointed overlapping governmental entities. Therefore, those authorities must recognize the objective and absolute authority of God. Between me and another father, there is a higher authority. Between an elder and a father, there is a higher authority. Between a state governor and the president, there is a higher authority. There's always a higher authority than the two people standing there. And appealing to that authority is how you defy tyrants. Now, Peter is referring to varying institutions. And this is a doctrine called theosophy. Most Americans define government in terms of a centralized state. The government is in Olympia. The government will create jobs. The government will take care of its citizens. We talk about the government like he's a guy. Right? And, and he usually is an abusive guy. But, but this is how we think of the word government. These statements show that mo the modern misunderstanding of what a government is. Historically, when he said the word government, he had to qualify himself. If you went back to 1750, and you walked up to somebody and you said, the government's evil, they'd be like, the government, which government? What government are you talking about? They would not assume like we do, that you just mean the federal government. Prior to World War I textbooks, which included instruction about the national government, would qualify the subject with the word civil. They would have to say civil government at the start in order for everyone to understand what they're even talking about. Because civil government is distinguished from personal government, family government, church government, school government. The state was seen as one government among many governments, each having a legitimate realm of God-ordained authority. This is only a hundred years ago where people understood this. But the very definition of the word government has changed. If you can see it in Webster's Dictionary. Webster's Dictionary, we looked at 1828 version, it says, this is how it defines government, direction, regulation. These precepts will serve for the government of our conduct. It also means control, restraint. Men are apt to neglect the government of their temper and passions. Now, have you ever considered your self-control to be self-governance? Like, when you say self-governance, it sounds very weird in the modern age. Like, who do you think you are? Do you think you live in Olympia, calling yourself a government? But I have a government over myself. I am the government of my house. I'm also the government here at the church, in what sense. And the fact that that sounds so weird to us is part of the problem. It's part of the problem. The modern Webster's definition, the one in the current Webster's dictionary, defines government as the exercise of authority over a state, a district, an organization, an institution. The 1828 Webster's dictionary defines government in terms of personal self-control. With the modern definition, Restrained to the term being only institution. This older understanding of government is, is understood in Anton Kuyper's doctrine of sphere sovereignty. Now, Kuyper, if you don't know who he is, you should. He was a 19th century Dutch pastor, theologian, and statesman and politician who rejected the popular sovereignty or democracy of the French Revolution, in which all rights and political authority reside in the individual. He also rejected state sovereignty Germany, in which all the rights and political authority resided in the state, a precursor to the fascism and communism of the 20th century. Now, the common views were that either all authority resided in the individual or all authority resided in the state. And Kuyper came along and said, that's stupid. And they elected him prime minister. <laughs> Kuyper taught that all rights and authority are derived from God for the individual as well as the state. 
God delegates rights and authority not only to individuals, but to states and all other intermediate bodies of authority, school boards, and elder boards, and families, and states, and counties, and the, and the tennis club. Right? The tennis club has a government. Guys who work at Wendy's cannot go to the tennis club and start telling everybody what to do there. This makes total sense to us when it comes to that kind of thing. What would you do if you drove up to the Wendy's and there was a McDonald's employee standing there and it's like, oh, we don't serve that, this is McDonald's. What are you doing? Like you're confused about where you are. And yet, when the state tells us to do something that it has no purview to do, we're all like, well, you're the government, so I guess I'll do it. But how, right, when you roll in, when you go to the DMV, they're wearing McDonald's uniform. And they're in a window. That's what it's like. You are like well outside of your name. And we, and we just, we do not understand it. There are more governments than the civil government, each having an authority over a defined jurisdiction. A government is a limited authority over a specific sphere of life. The government of the home are the parents, the government of the school is the headmaster or school board, the government of the city is the city council or mayor, the government of the church is the pastor or more properly the session of elders. The problem is that most modern Americans think that the state is the supreme authority. And it's not, it's not that difficult to understand why. It's completely understandable. The state determines how fast you can drive. It determines the kindergarten curriculum. Who gets a license to cut hair? You have to have a license to cut hair. I remember discovering that when I was 17. And I thought, we have all gone to come. I was there and I was like, what is the paper here? It like, has like the state seal on it. And they're like, well, this is my license to cut hair. I was like, ha, ha, ha. that's funny. You have to have a license to cut hair. I'm serious. <laughs> that was when I first started to wake up to the There's something wrong. The government tells you how many rounds of ammunition you can carry in your gun. You need to know how to work around that company. <laughs> the government tells us how much ethanol to mix with our gasoline. Because we live in such a decadent age that we can literally take corn and burn it when we don't need to. For some reason that I also don't understand. Why do they put ethanol in gasoline? Why are we literally burning corn? Aren't there some people somewhere who could probably use the corn? Given the size and power of the state, it is no wonder that government has such a narrow definition and we all belong with it. But it wasn't always this way. The government of self, of the church, of a city, of a family, of a private property, are all defined biblically as separate governments. The immediate context of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, is very important for us to understand. After mentioning the, this phrase, human institutions, Peter goes on to articulate what those institutions are. He addresses servants, or, or, or as we would call workers, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. He addresses wives husbands, in chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, and elders in 5, 1 through 11. We've got all the major governmental groups. He discusses the state government, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. These are the human institutions he's talking about. He says, obey them all. And you don't obey them all by making one of them supreme over the others that isn't. Now, how does spirit sovereignty work? Police officers understand spirit sovereignty very well. If the deputy of one county drives into another county and, and arrests someone, he is in violation of his authority. It, it, this is an, a very important idea. My dad was a police officer for 32 years. He could not just go around arresting people, <laughs> though he wanted to many times. His jurisdiction is Seattle. If you have a county guy who goes from Snohomish County to King County and just starts arresting people, the people in King County are going to have a problem with that, and they should. And this, this is easy, and another instance where it's very easy to understand. 
the U.S. Embassy in London is considered U.S. soil. The authority of the U.K. is the door. And I don't think most people understand this. This is how embassies work. The soil of the U.S. Embassy in London is America. The London government treats it as America. The people who work there treat it as America. If an American citizen has committed a crime in the U.K. and runs to the embassy, which you should, if you ever commit a crime in a foreign country, get to the embassy back. It's the U.S. government that has to the personnel. We will turn our citizens over to you through the usual diplomatic channels. Now, if the U.K. The UK would just be like, okay, we're going to go on this U.S. embassy, and we're going to go over there and get the guy. It would be what they call in politics an international incident. This is why when an attack on the U.S. embassy in Iraq is considered an attack on the U.S. itself. They take it very seriously. And, and what's funny is, again, this is very easy for us to understand. But then when we get to verses like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, which gives the authority over child's education expressly to fathers, not governments, we all suddenly lose our minds. Well, I get the enemy example, and it says here that fathers are to raise their children in fear and admonition of the Lord, but it's not really my responsibility as the government. The government says it's a responsibility, and everybody says, okay, well, you're the government. I mean, you told me what to read in kindergarten, you tell me how fast to drive, and you tell me how much corn to burn in my gasoline, so I guess you're in charge. Because we have literally, we're, we're blinded. We're blinded. Last year should have not surprised anyone. And yet it did. But we have all been well groomed for decades and decades and decades to simply say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, when the government tells us to do something. The state has no biblical jurisdiction over the education of your children. None. The civil government has a sphere over which they have authority. As I said earlier in 2 Peter 2.14, it says that they have authority to punish evil doers, not raise your children. And what this also means, if they have the ability to punish evildoers, private citizens do not. And this is why vigilantism is so wicked. Now, what code has shown is that modern American Christians are not familiar with the doctrine of their sovereignty, obviously. We intuitively know that if a police officer disbarges into our home, it is a wicked, unless, of course, he has an, there's an emergency, like scream for help, or he has a warrant issued to him by another authority, the judiciary. Right? The cops can't just come into my house. They've got to have a warrant to do so. And if they did... Right? And when they do, it's like, oh, cool, fine, um, we're going to take your court. This is not going to happen. I'm not going to stand for this. And yet, when the government invades all, all kinds of other areas of our lives, they don't usually do so with a gun. <laughs> and so it's a little less obvious for us to understand what it is actually happening. It's called soft tyranny. Hard tyranny is easy to do. Right? They roll up in trucks, and they haul you off and put you on trains and ship you off. That's hard to do. Like, this is clearly true. Soft tyranny <laughs> is the fact that they put fluoride in our water because they don't trust us to brush our teeth. That's soft tyranny. I do not want fluoride in my water. But why do they put fluoride in my water? It was apparently I'm too stupid to realize I need to brush my teeth. And this is what the government yeah. thinks of you. This is what the government thinks of you. You are too dumb to brush your teeth. Given sphere sovereignty, how far can the government go in making medical decisions for you? How far can it go limiting the size of your birthday party, Thanksgiving meal, the, the size of your magazine and your AR, what your kid learns in so-called sex education? My body, my choice only seems to apply to baby children. This, again, our reason is broken. We do not understand what we are talking about. 
right? Did anybody stand up and say, my body, my choice, during all this nonsense? Right, what, what would have happened if you walked into Fred Meyer and you're like, oh, you need to wear your mask, and you're like, my body, my choice. My wife was brave enough to say she identified as a mask wearer. It worked for her. <laughs> but we are very confused. And they want us this way. This is why we all went to public schools. They got exactly what they wanted, compliance. Now, I want to cover something that's very important. Peter says that there is one authority that is supreme. There really is. There, there is one authority under which all the other authorities generally fall. Because you can't have a state that's not Christian that doesn't fall necessarily under the authority of the church. You have a whole bunch of people who are, who are not Christians running the government, and, and you have no pastor telling them how to live their lives. You have no pastor instructing them, encouraging them, um, building them up. Now, but everybody lives in a, in a situation where they have the government, the civil government. And, and Peter addresses this. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake every human institution, whether it be to the king as supreme. Now, and that's what I want to talk about. What does it mean that the king is supreme? Who is the king of the United States? Who's the king of the United States? Now, we know Jesus is the king of the United States. But who's the actual king of the United States? Where is the throne? I've actually been to the throne in marble, like you would think a throne room would be. Well, it's got a lot of light. If you go to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., it looks like a throne room where the Constitution sits. And that is actually the king. But what does it mean that a piece of paper is a king? We should understand, right? We should understand that there's one the written law that oversees all other authorities. We should be able to get that. But why we are so confused about how the Constitution functions in this state, in this country, is because we're confused about how this functions in the church and in our personal lives. Now, we've covered some of this before, and, and Jared has done some teaching on it. We sent it out as a newsletter. It's really good. If you want to read it again, I, I can show it to you. But what has always been understood in the church is that the law is king. The Constitution is the king. The law is the king. We, we are a, a, a nation of laws, not of men. In 1 Samuel 10.25, it says that Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid before the Lord. And this is what he presented to the king. He said, this is what you're going to do, and if you don't do it, it's not going to go well for you. And all of us who are sitting through the Samuel series see that it's not going well for Saul because he's not obeying. And, and this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. This is political theology 101. It says in Deuteronomy 17, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this book, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, we have all this other confusion. People think this has nothing to do with us because it's in the Old Testament. Going back to the very beginning, John Adams is correct. You need, you need a religious and moral people. And we're not a moral king because we do not understand the role of the law of Moses in our lives. The law of grace. The law of Christ. It does not matter if the king is a Christian or not. This is what a king is supposed to do because it's the word of God that says it. it. It is not void if you don't believe it. Now, what, what happens to us is we're like, well, those guys don't know because they aren't believers. So they're off the hook. And that's not how the word of God works. That is not how the Word of God works. It is true 
Let everyone else be a liar. And it is our responsibility to tell people what they don't believe. Right? We, we, when you go to someone's house and you're going to explain to them the four spiritual laws and you're going to get them to say a prayer, we understand that. They don't really want to hear that, but we're trying to engage in this sort of right, evangelism. Well, how come we don't do evangelism where we write letters to the governor and tell him that he ought to write out a copy of the law and read it every day or he's not going to survive? Do the governors in this country obey the law every day? How's it going for us? How's it going for us? And this is where we are supremely confused. What are we to evangelize in both ends? When Jesus says, go and make disciples of right? teaching them all that I instructed you, did he mean that Jesus saved and that's it? Right? I'm saved. All of this whole thing is just about salvation. That's it. Now, to us, that's all it's about. And so when we think we're taking this and offering it to the world, that's all we're offering to Because we don't understand that the whole counsel of God has to do with every area of life. If you want the whole counsel of God, you should be able to tell me what this has to do with federal agencies. What does this have to say to federal agencies? What does this have to do with the White House? The law of God is the law of God. God is in charge. It does not matter if you believe in him or not. This is what instructs us in how to live. And, and the problem is, is that we have create, you know, we're trying to make disciples in a very narrow sense. Because we are ourselves disciples in a very narrow sense. Law establishes the authority of men and acts as a final appeal. Right? This is how it works. Who would want to live in a country where here is a king and here is me and there's nothing above him to appeal to? Would you want to live in such a kingdom? We're like, okay, well, you're, it's just what you say or nothing else? Now, I've been in churches like that, and I, I didn't lack law. Why? Because I, I, the thing that I studied more than the New Testament was Republicanism. And I thought, this seems like hearing. Like, I'm not really sure if this is what the Bible tells us to do. But this sounds like hearing to me, and I'm out. And when I read a Wikipedia article, <coughs> Presbyterianism sounded the most like a Republican government. I was like, that's probably what we are supposed to do. Because if it's, if, it, if it's you and me, and the final authority is me, how much fun would that be? How sanctified would you all be in two weeks? It would be me in here preaching to just my kids. Probably just Peter because he can't run away fast enough. <laughs> CEOs, sheriffs, judges, do you want to stand in front of a judge where there is nowhere to appeal above him? This is the way that God wanted government to work. There is a written law, and everyone obeys the written law. Well, we have examples of this as well in the New Testament. Remember when uh, the disciples, or the apostles by then, go before the uh, Sanhedrin, and, and they say to them, we, we are going to obey God over you. We're not going to listen to what you say, we're going to obey God. They're, they are appealing to a higher authority. And they, one of the other examples I love because when I start to talk this way, you get into debates with people. They're like, well, that was Rome. Like, Rome didn't, right? They never heard of Samuel Rutherford and the Life Correct. Get over yourself. And I like, yeah, but they heard of Moses. Okay. Where did you think the Romans got the law? It's called the Corpus Civilis, or the Twelfth Table. And if you go and you look at it, if you study law, you're like, yeah, everybody was ripping off Moses because Moses seemed to know it, because God taught him. 
Act 22, 25. I love this. But when they had stretched him out for the wind, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And the centurion said, Shut up! And whipped him. No, And the centurion said, Whoa, whoa, he just appealed to the law. Get down. Now I'm very frightened because I put my hands on you, and that's not allowed in Rome. If you put your hands on a Roman citizen, you're putting your hands on Jesus. Right? Now, modern Christians would have been on the rack, not to be with, and they would have been like, hey, dude, you're not allowed to do that. That's against the law. I need due process. And the guy would be like, no, I'm the highest authority. And for 18 months, we all said, have at me. And that was it. Most people didn't even appeal to anything. They just took it. And why do they take it? Because they don't understand, they don't understand how this works. You do not simply have to obey any authority in this world, whether it's a parent or a pastor or a president, you don't have to obey them just because they have an office. They are not the supreme law in the land. Now, how do we deal with this? What do you do when the, the pastor comes to your house and he's going to instruct you now on how to brush your teeth? I show up at your house and I'm like, hey, listen, you know, I noticed your kids' mouths were kind of dirty. And it's my responsibility for you to be sanctified, for me to teach you now how to write teeth. Now, if, right, how many of you guys would be like, somebody called Joel? <laughs> Mike has gotten out of hand again. We would all react that way, wouldn't we? We'd be like, Mike, what are you doing? Like, in rhetorically, I'd say, hey, let's sit down and look through your Netflix queue, because that's rhetorically disrespectful. But what if I actually came over to your house to do it? Right? You guys would be like, hey, guys, man. And the government comes and says, listen, we're going to put fluoride in your water. Because you can't brush your teeth. And we're all like, okay, thanks. I'm so glad you're here. Because, you know, the mouth is dirty. What are you supposed to do when some authority won't stay in its place? Well, this also is a doctrine, and it has a name. It's called interposition. 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 Now, imagine a police officer comes to your house uninvited. We all recognize that doing so would be a violation of their authority and your rights. It would be illegal. Governments cannot suddenly jump the boundaries of their authority and start acting unilaterally. So what gives the government the right and authority to interfere with the sovereignty of another government is a justification, a warrant. They have to have a reason to do so. A police officer needs a warrant. A warrant is a document issued by a judge. He reviews the evidence and says, yes, go and invade that person's home. You violate their rights. Go for it, buddy. We have probable cause to think it's good. The government has to have a just and legitimate reason to set aside your rights. Now remember our previous example. What if the civil government is no longer a terror to bad conduct, but a terror to good conduct? Who issues a warrant to violate their sovereignty? Does any, I mean, do we have any idea? What do we do, right? What, what is the, the President of the United States reason that the concept of you all owning guns to defend yourselves against the government is dumb because we have F-16s in use. And you're like, wow, I feel super safe now. <laughs> like, you just threatened us with F-16s and nuclear bombs. And that, you just do that? You do that. Twice. Now, who's going to write a warrant for us to invade his, to, to go after his sphere of sovereignty? Interposition. Interposition means to stand in the gap, willingly placing yourself between the oppressor and the intended victim. The book of Ezekiel is where we got this, get this concept. He's instructing Ezekiel. He's saying, listen, 
All the priests are, are doing wicked things. All the people are healing from the poor. There is no one who's interceding. There's no one who will stand in the breach before me, he says. And that's what interposition means. You're going to stand in the breach. Here are the oppressors. Here are the victims. And interposition is standing in the middle. As American citizens, we do not obey men. We obey the Constitution and the elected officials who are obeying the Constitution. And once those authorities are violating the Constitution, then they have to become, they have become tyrannical and someone must step in gap. Now, Pastor Trujillo, Pastor Trujillo, he wrote this. America's founders understood that the civil government's authority was delegated and therefore limited. They state in the Declaration of Independence that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They understood that these rights did not originate from the state, but rather were given to men by God and protected by the state. Overlapping authority protects us from one another's wickedness and tyranny. So what, what, what that means is then, right, if you have a husband beating his family, the state and the church has to intercede. They have to, they have to get in the gap in between the oppressor and the oppressed. And this, it does not matter what Sarasabi we're talking about. This is our responsibility. What did Jesus do? Did he stand in the gap between the oppressors and the oppressed? He did. That was his whole mission. And yet, we stand around watching soft tyranny, just popping the popcorn, having that, like, wow, this is really entertaining. All of this politics that's going on on CNN, this is fascinating stuff. Or we go and we just we become softwalk and we rail against it. We start filling sandbags. Double loading, you know, our, our guns. That old school Vietnam style. We like duct tape two magazines together so you can flip them around, right? We're like, yeah, we're ready to do some interposition. But how many of us in the last 18 months stood up and said, hey, listen, you know, you tied me to this practice. You don't have the authority to do that. Right? We said it in our own homes. We mocked, we ridiculed, we belittled. But how many of us actually stood up and said that thing? Like, how many, right? Did anybody go down to the police station and be like, listen, I don't know what's wrong with you guys, but you're allowing the federal government, the, the state government, to overstep the bounds. Did anybody write a letter to the, did anybody call the county sheriff? This is what we will complain about things, but we won't do anything. This is the people that we have become. We will talk about how much we hate all of this stuff, but when it comes time to do something, we won't do it. And then when there are people who do something, Say the church stands up for itself. Everybody's like, man, haven't you heard of Jesus? He just took something out. Like, he just said that. They stopped him around. He didn't do nothing. He didn't appeal nothing. But yes, yes, you're right. And that was required to save us all from our sin. But I remember a few other stories, right? If you go to the book of John, there's like 20 chapters before that, where he didn't take it on the mouth. He said, no, I'm not going to obey you. You don't understand the law. And he argued and debated and pursued people, and he stood up for the oppressed. Why aren't you interposing? Why aren't you standing up for the oppressed? Who are the oppressed? Right? We all drove here in one of our two cars. Right? We all have really nice clothes that probably sound you guys look nice. Right? Does any, do you see any oppressed people around here? And what the, what the world wants now is they're going to tell us who's oppressed. Well, women, all of them are just oppressed. Black people are oppressed. 
They always want to tell us, right? They want to get it all worked up because they want us to help the oppressed. Who are the actual oppressed? I'm not going to answer this question for you. This is one of those rhetorical questions I want you to go away from because it's homework. Okay? Who are you not interposing for? If you're not interposing for someone, then you're not obeying and following Jesus. It's as simple as that. You go to Acts 6, what are they arguing about? Why do they need to have deacons the first time? Because the widows in their midst were not being sufficiently taken care of. So the church understood someone has got to inter interpose for these widows who have nothing and they're being mistreated. What are you going to do, apostles? And they said, like, you know what we should do? We have officers just help take care of people. Now, what do we do? Well, we take them down to the Social Security office and make sure they're signed up for Medicaid. Because we think the nanny state is going to take care of everything. And the nanny state is fine with that. The nanny state is like, listen, you don't have to worry, don't, don't worry about it. You just send your kids to kindergarten. We'll make sure they're well fed. We'll make sure that they're clothed. We'll make sure that they're taught how to masturbate. It'll be fine. You give them a few hours in the, in the evening, try not to mess up our hard work. Because what this country wants, what culture wants, what the nanny state wants, is a 35-year-old user living in the basement, getting high, playing video games all day. And it's recreating the homes in this country in that image. They don't want you to be self-sufficient. They don't want you to work for yourself. They don't want you to impose. They will take care of you. And, and, and this is always what happens to people. That's fine with me. Wait, I don't, right? I don't have to go to church and we have to work, work out some sort of structure so that we can take care of the old retired people in our community. Right? My, my participation in church goes down as the participation of the government goes up. We have given away the store. Why a hundred years ago were all the hospitals called things like Providence? It's because they were ran by Catholics. Schools. 200 years ago, we have to go back a little bit further because the, the government of this country knows what it's about. Right? Hey guys, don't worry about these kids. Go off to work. We read this guy, his name's Rousseau, he's great, he told us how to do this. What we're going to do is we're going to raise your children for you. And, and we're all fine with that. And now what we've begun to do is to interpose on behalf of our children. We've begun to stand in the gap for them, right? What else, though? What else is the church supposed to be doing? Why is it that we, right? Do you know how hard it is to help homeless people in the community? Do you know why? Because, because the state is in the way. And, and, and on one level, you're like, fine, okay, good. They're getting off, right? They're getting off the street. They're getting clean. They're getting food. They're getting clothes. It's super. I feel so useless. It's like I'm forcing myself into the situation. And you know what I feel like most of the time when we try to help this, this cop and clergy thing that we do? Is they're kind of like patting me on the head and like, here, we'll throw you a bone. Here's this one guy who needs a chapter. You like, you feel like you did your good work for the day, and the state will just go along making dependent. The nanny state wants your kids. The nanny state wants you. The nanny state wants your grandparents. They want to take care of you from the cradle to the rocker. They want to take care of you from the womb to the tomb. They want to undo the nuclear family. They don't want that. They don't want productivity. They don't want fruitfulness. Now, who does want productivity and fruitfulness? They want to stand in the gap for the oppressed so that the church is useless. And they've been doing it for a hundred years. That is what all of the government programs are about. 
and, and they just tied a little happy bow on it last year when they're like, yeah, you guys are not essential. And we've been being non-essential for a long time. And we're like, well, there's this one last thing that we do, but I guess if you don't want us to do that, we'll go home. We are not a moral and religious people. We're not. We think we are. We have all the trappings of it, but we are not. There are a few areas in our lives where like, yeah, okay, Jesus, you can have, like, I agree with you because I don't like authority personally, so I'm going to say screw you to the government schools, and I'm going to raise my kids myself and raise them in my home and educate them myself. And, and we can be just enough of a libertarian to pull that off. But then the government tells us how to do this, that, and everything else, and we're like, okay, cool. And, and this, this leads to the other problem. The other problem is the police state. Because the nanny state, right? She's a shrill old lady. She's not happy with you. So she sends a policeman. This is how you get the police state. As the morality declines in a country, somebody has got to keep order. And so what they do is they bring back all the weapons from Iraq that weren't being used and give them to the police department. They're like, here, here's a tank. Right? Because nanny states like nanny, we've been we've been teaching them at school how to really disobey all of them and just have that like life in whatever way they want and they're a little out of control now. So we need dad, the police state, to come in here and help us keep control. And think about it, right? Think about what a police officer does. Is he keeping the peace or is he stopping you on the side of the road to make sure that you have nanny state permission slip to drive her car around? I love everyone. You may have bought the car, but the pad situation is just a very fancy way of you leasing the car. And, and this is what police are now. They're going to come up to your car with a gun and make sure you have mommy's permission so that you drive your car. Did she say you could drive this car? And, and, and we've been well-groomed, and we just do it. We're bored. We don't understand it. We are not fit for this Constitution. I don't want to hear about the Constitution anymore. I'm sick of it. And the reason I'm sick of it is because nobody understands what it's supposed to do. Right? How many of us actually used it during all this time? Or how many of us sat on our homes bitching about it? Just complaining about it? Oh, I hate Inslee. Inslee's such a tyrant. Did anybody write a letter to Inslee? Did anybody go and say, well, yes, okay. No. There's always the exception. It's usually Molly. <laughs> Don't talk to me about the Constitution. Don't talk to me about Republicanism. Right? If how many of us were raised saying, I, I, I live in a nation indivisible under God. There are no nations that are indivisible. That very concept is a lie. One of many lies that we've all swallowed. And then we're going to stand up as an adult, really because we just don't like authority and being told what to do, and rail against these things without actually interposing for anyone. And then when people do stand up to interpose, we mock them. We mock and ridicule them. I don't know how many times in the last 18 months, while trying to interpose for worshipers, people have said, I have authority problem. But um, I do. I, sure. That's not what this is about, right? That's not what this is about. This is called interposition. Somebody has got to stand up for the church and say, you're way out of your lane, state. Government? We are in one. And this is this is the point of the whole thing. Are you tired of the Are you tired of all this crazy politics? 
We tired the left and right. Right? This is, you can take anybody you want to be president if you choose between these two clouds. Are you sick of it being this way? We need to understand what the law of God is meant to do. What, how, what is the law of God for? Is, is, is this very, very, very narrow and only about salvation? Or is it about all of life? Is it about the way we love our spouses, and the way we raise our kids, and the way we vote, and the way we go to work, and the way we run our businesses, and the way we bank? Is it about interposition and who we interpose for? What is this about? If you can't, you don't talk to me about the Constitution until you can learn what this says about government. Until you learn what this says about who the king and the lord of the universe is. Then you can talk to me about the governor should and shouldn't do. We don't know how we'll get a fifth commandment. And I want everyone, this is the lesson. Start here. This is where you start. We don't need a nanny state because we have a mother. Galatians 4.26 But the Jerusalem above is free and she is a mother. She is not a slave. She is free. And she is your mother. We have a father, Galatians 4.6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You belong to a household that gives you a greater citizenship than the United States. Ephesians 2.12-13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Are you citizens primarily of heaven or America? Is your mom the nanny state, or Jerusalem above that is free? Is your father the Lord in heaven? This, right, if you start to understand what these things mean, and what that requires of you, then you will be fit for the Constitution. Then you will be fit for the body politic, and then you will be fit for heaven. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for Peter and his ministry. We thank you, Lord, for his epistle. We thank you, Lord, that he um, learned from you, Lord, how to be a citizen of heaven, how to honor his mother and father. We thank you, Lord, that he is instructing us in this. We pray, Lord, that as we go from here, that you would give us a great deal of understanding and insight into our own hearts and minds, into our situation as Americans. What does reformation look like? Where does it begin? What does it require of us? I pray, Lord God, that as we go from here and that we celebrate the great glorious freedom that we have been given, that we would not abuse it, but that we would use it. We would read our Bible, that we would gather together, that we would talk about these things, that we would sing and praise you and worship you with our whole life, that we would not be mere disciples of salvation, but that we would be disciples of all of life. Amen.